0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617 629 3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Germany says nine Danke to the nation's nine nuclear power plants still in operation but no nukes will generate consequences.
2: There'll be a lot of people who will become unemployed by closing down those nuclear power plants, and they're also going to be creating some environmental issues, possibly increase in CO2 emissions.
1: Coming up, the cost benefits of Germany sinking its fleet of nuclear power plants. Also, environmentalists challenge California's carbon targets, and the lesson scientists hope to learn from corals that can thrive in hot water.
3: When you're talking about 38 degrees Celsius and corals are living through it, it's a remarkable story in terms of the story that it could tell us about climate change and its potential impacts or non-impacts on reef systems.
1: What it takes to survive if you're a coral reef in the Persian Gulf. We'll have these stories and more this week on Living on Earth.
3: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From
1: the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Germany has had a love-hate relationship with nuclear power. Reactors provide nearly a quarter of the industrial nation's needs. And last fall, Chancellor Angela Merkel announced she was extending the life of nuclear power plants till 2035. But now, in the shadow of the Fukushima disaster and under intense political pressure, Merkel has reversed that decision and is ending the relationship, promising that Germany will pull the plug on all of its nuclear power plants by 2022. For reaction, we turn to Chris Kodomsky, lead nuclear analyst at Bloomberg New Energy Finance.
2: Quite frankly, I'm not surprised at uh, the decision to go ahead and do this. Given the environmental interests and uh, concerns of the German population, they have decided that uh, this is the way that they want to go forward. It's a very exciting time for the German people.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, the Green Movement is very strong there, Right after the Fukushima disaster, there were a quarter of a million people marching to demand the nuclear power be shut down.
2: Absolutely right. This is not surprising that when you have such a dramatic and terrible event as happened in Fukushima, that those people became increasingly concerned and have tried to go ahead and, and develop a strategy that would allow them to go forward without nuclear power. And it relies very heavily on development of renewable energy and of a large deployment and commitment to uh, solar power.
1: Germany has a huge amount of offshore wind and wind on land, and they're planning a lot more solar, actually.
2: It's very interesting that Germans really are responsible for the tremendous global surge in solar power installations, by introducing a feed-in tariff, which provided those individuals and those corporations in Germany with very attractive tariffs for, for selling the solar to the government.
1: They have 17 nuclear power plants in Germany. I guess they shut down seven after Fukushima, and that leaves 10 nuclear power plants. Can they make that type of energy up using renewable energy resources?
2: Well, in addition to their emphasis on developing renewable energy technologies, the country is advocating a significant decrease in the amount of energy consumption by 28%. They're also going to have to go ahead and additionally import electricity from surrounding countries. Ironically, the electricity that would come from surrounding countries would be dirty coal from Poland, uh, nuclear power from France, and perhaps nuclear power from the Czech Republic.
1: So does that mean that uh, inevitably there's going to be more CO2 greenhouse gases in the atmosphere?
2: I think that that's a fair assumption that if you're going to eliminate 20 gigawatts of nuclear power, which produces electricity without any carbon, and you replace them with a percentage of uh, of fossil fuels, that it's going to be a net increase in CO2 emissions.
1: Greenpeace says that Germany can actually shut down all of its nukes within four years and have no brownouts, no blackouts, and not increase in the long run the amount of CO2 going in the air.
2: Well, that must be Greenpeace's opinion of talk to other people who sort of dispute that and anticipate that there'll be problems in the near term, keeping the country cool this summer. Germany is a big industrial economy, and so it's going to require a lot of very dense energy capacity to go ahead and power that and keep it uh, going. So I hope that the Greenpeace is right. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical that it will actually accomplish that, but it's part of my job as an analyst to look carefully at the numbers and see what I think.
1: It's hard to believe that Germany would make this kind of decision thinking it was going to jeopardize uh, their industrial society.
2: When you look at something like this, you need to sort of examine the decision through what I call a steep analysis. And the steep analysis means looking at the social, technological, economic, environmental, and political components of the decision. In making those decisions, however, there created some additional environmental and economic problems, the price of electricity is one of the highest it is in Europe, and we had forecast that it would increase it by 6% just as a result of closing down the seven nuclear power plants, and that further closure of nuclear power plants would also add to the cost of electricity. There'll be a lot of people who will become unemployed by closing down those nuclear power plants, and they're also going to be creating some environmental issues, possibly increase in CO2 emissions.
1: Are the German people going to, uh, you know, ante up?
2: Well, apparently, it's, it's, again, where do the priorities of the German people lie? Do the German priorities lie in spending less money for electricity or in going green and doing away with nuclear? Apparently, public support is very favorable in Germany for the decision, so apparently we can conclude then that they're more concerned with going forward in a green, um, non-nuclear way than with uh, spending less money for electricity. We did a survey of um, those countries which had nuclear power and planning nuclear power in the immediate week following Fukushima disaster, and we saw, by and large, most of the countries were going to maintain and stay the course. However, as this situation in Fukushima continues to be more messy and continues to drag on, we're seeing support for nuclear power starting to erode.
1: What about the United States?
2: Well, the United States is a very, very surprising case. Most people don't realize that there are five nuclear power plants already under construction in the United States, and we had forecast in the mid wake of um, Fukushima that five of those nuclear power plants will be completed by 2020. How successful those plants are completed, i.e. on budget, on schedule, will sort of suggest whether or not there'll be an additional second wave of nuclear power plants under construction in the United States.
1: Well, Chris, thank you very much. I really
2: appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure having the opportunity to chat, and uh, I wish the Germans the best of luck going forward and hope that uh, they're very successful with the renewable energy future.
1: Chris Kodomsky is lead nuclear analyst at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Well, to address the threat of climate change, California has adopted the toughest laws in the nation. Most of the carbon emission reductions come from rules requiring more renewable energy, more fuel-efficient cars, and cleaner gas but the centerpiece of California's carbon cleanup effort is supposed to come from the marketplace, a carbon cap and trade mechanism so companies can buy and sell emission credits. But that centerpiece is under threat, and not just from the folks you might expect. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lubet reports.
4: Since California adopted the cap-and-trade portion of its climate law, there's a new governor in town, Jerry Brown. Five months into his term, Brown is still tied up with nightmare budget scenarios, but when he does turn his attention to climate, he'll have influence. The rule isn't final yet, and the Air Resources Board that is writing the rules serves at his will. Bill McGavern, director of Sierra Club California, hopes the governor will use his broad discretion.
5: There's no reason why the past hand of Arnold Schwarzenegger needs to continue to guide California's global warming policy.
4: The Sierra Club has two main gripes with cap and trade the way it's written. In the early years of the market, supposed to begin next January, most of the allowances are to be given away to businesses, not sold. The Sierra Club says Brown could recast the model by charging for these permits.
5: You have a windfall for big oil companies who are already making billions and billions of dollars in profits. So at a time when the state is broke, why would we be giving money away to oil companies
4: the second issue concerns what happens when a business decides it cannot afford in a given year to make improvements that lower emissions. The business can, of course, purchase allowances from other companies, but they have another option McGavern considers a major loophole. They can also purchase allowances from timber firms who grow trees, sequestering carbon in forests.
6: Logging
5: companies could clear-cut forests in California and then replant them and say that they were offsetting carbon pollution, which would be the wrong thing for the climate and definitely the wrong thing for California's forests and streams and habitat.
4: The group that wrote the rule sees it differently. It's maximizing carbon in the forest, not conservation, that's the goal. And the chief of the California Air Resources Board says there won't be any reward for clear-cutting. There are other critiques that come from grassroots environmental groups. They've long worked to restrict cap-and-trade. Angela Johnson-Mazaros represents several mostly small groups of residents who live close to heavy industry. At first, they saw the law as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to improve conditions for communities who already have high aggregate exposure to pollutants. It is the place where the
0: interest that I care about are overlapping with the interests of what the mainstream environmental community is caring about. The impacts of fossil fuel, from extraction to refining to use to disposal, are a key part of the negative impacts in a lot of the communities that I care about. And if people want to address fossil fuel usage because they're concerned about carbon, I'm
4: all for it. 33 million Californians live with unhealthy air. In most places, the air is improving, but pollution is still severe in the Los Angeles Basin and other places. Large plants like power plants and refineries are responsible for 40% of the pollution. Since things you do to reduce carbon dioxide emissions tend to reduce the dangerous pollutants as well, Johnson was hopeful that the climate law would mean no new plants in poor neighborhoods and maybe that existing plants would have cleaner smokestacks.
0: The way it actually rolled out was we're not going to actually change the way we make and use energy in dealing with the climate crisis, We're not going to focus on how are we going to change our energy mix. We're just going to keep citing fossil fuel power plants.
4: So the residents sued the state of California, saying it hadn't followed its own environmental impact law. A superior court judge agreed and ordered the state to stop work on cap and trade while it shows how it arrived at its decisions. But it's unclear what effect the court order has. The Air Board says it hasn't stopped working on anything and is appealing. Stanley Young at the Air Resources Board defends the agency and says the lawsuit leaves the wrong impression.
3: We have worked hard to clean up the major sources of pollution in those communities, uh, many of which are down in the ports. We're cleaning up the diesel trucks, the diesel engines, the port equipment, We're cleaning up railroads and rail yards. So we are working hard to address the concerns of low-income communities.
4: Firms that represent industry are closely watching these challenges. John Costantino now works for Manat, one of those firms. But four years ago, he found himself in a key place at a key moment. California had passed its climate change law. Part of his job was to staff up the new climate division at the Air Resources Board.
5: I was one of the first three hires, and I had the title of Manager of Climate Change Planning.
4: He also had to oversee the creation of the gigantic plan that spelled out how the eighth largest economy in the world would ratchet down on carbon. Costantino says capping carbon and allowing the largest emitters to trade really is the best plan.
5: Without cap and trade, AB32 is what California has been doing for 30 years. Energy efficiency, cleaner cars, more efficient houses. And so the reason cap and trade is important is it was going to be the first time that a economy-wide market-based environmental program was put into place. It brings in banks, it brings in the offset providers. There's a lot more uh, investment and interest. It really widens the field of people who care about this program.
4: If Costantino sounds like he's talking about a program that's dead, he doesn't mean to. He believes it's very much alive.
5: It is strictly a timing issue and as long as ARB can get the work done, this summer to finalize the regulation by fall, then the program will start up maybe January, maybe slightly delayed.
4: And if it's only a delay, heavy industry can continue to plan for the carbon-constrained California they'd begun to expect. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
1: Just ahead, the dangers of trying to defend the Amazon forest. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. José Claudio Ribeiro de Silva and his wife Maria supported their family by tapping rubber trees in Brazil's vast Amazon forest. They were modest peasants, but giants among environmentalists working to preserve the vital ecosystem. The couple knew their forest activism put their lives in danger. Six months ago, Jose Claudio, or Z Claudio as he's known, gave this TED Talk in Manaus, in the heart of the Amazon.
5: I live
7: from the forest, and I will protect her by any means. For this, I may have a bullet in my head at any time. I stand up, I denounce the loggers, and for this, they think I cannot exist. I can be here today, talking with you, and a month from now... You know what could happen to me. Disappeared.
1: On May 24th, Z. Claudio and his wife Maria were murdered. Christian Poirier is Brazil Program Coordinator for Amazon Watch.
8: Z. Claudio was gunned down in the eastern Amazonian state of Pará. He was gunned down because of his work to protect the forest, the forest he depends on for his survival.
1: Do they know who did it?
8: They believe it was... Two assassins who uh, came up alongside he and his wife, they found uh, 15 shell casings on the the area where he was murdered. Uh, They were on their motorcycles at the time. And the assassins actually cut off the ear of both he and his wife to take these uh, items back to the people who hired them.
1: So it was a contract killing? Definitely. And and just a few days after they were murdered, another environmental activist was murdered in the western state of Hondonia in Brazil.
8: There was uh, there were two murders, actually. There was one high-profile leader of the Cotimbara Farmers Movement, um, Hondonia Adelino Hamus, and another farmer who was allied with Claudio and his wife, Erin Milton Pereira, who was murdered in Pará, all in the space of uh, four days. They were all environmental activists.
1: The government, the federal government, has announced a special investigation, but... It has an awful track record in terms of both preventing uh, assassinations in this part of the Amazon and finding out who did it.
8: Indeed. Of the 1,150 activists like Zeclaugio and Chico Mendes before him, who have been killed in the Amazon since 1988, uh, fewer than 100 of these cases have gone to court. Of these 100 cases, only about Eighty of the hired gunmen have been convicted, and 15 of the men who hired them have been found guilty. But of those 15, only one is serving a sentence today, and this is the man who was responsible for ordering the slaying of Dorothy Stang, the American nun who fought to protect the forest in the state of Pará.
1: I've been to this area. It's, it's a vast frontier, and it's kind of like the Wild West.
8: In fact, yes, there's even a word in Portuguese, faroeste. You know, they, they use that same sort of terminology to talk about this lawless region. I would say that this is, we could consider this a full-fledged assault on the Amazon and its protectors.
1: I understand that the murder of Zé Claudio and his wife Maria took place just a few hours before the lower house of Brazil's Congress passed a very controversial change to Brazil's Forest Code.
8: I would definitely say that this was not a coincidence, that the murder of these activists, these forest guardians, um, coming on the same day as a massive weakening to Brazil's forestry code, sends a signal to all those who are trying to protect the forest that they will be met with the same level of violence and impunity. The change to the Forestry Code is quite significant. What was once a protection of Amazonian agricultural parcels uh, that mandated 80% of the forest remain standing brings that particular protection down to 20%. And not only that, it also opens up very sensitive environments like hillsides and riverbeds. It allows uh, the planting of exotic plant species, often uh, GMO crops like eucalyptus on what was once native forest land. Um, and it also potentially opens up an amnesty for those who illegally deforested land previously. When this um, change was introduced in the Congress, we have witnessed a spike of over 400% in deforestation in the Amazon.
1: You know, deforestation was way down last year.
8: Brazilian government has has done a very effective job of implementing fairly good reforms in terms of their monitoring of deforestation. But um, I would also say that the lessening of deforestation, in large part because of the world economic crisis, um, where you saw the reduction in the costs of commodities that are um, have driven deforestation all along. As you see the rise in commodity prices, you're going to see the rise in deforestation. Beef and soy and timber are probably the three top commodities that are coming out of the Amazon and driving the process for deforestation.
1: Before you go, I I want to play a piece of tape from uh, Z. Claudio's appearance at the TED conference in in Manaus, Brazil. And uh, it's quite
4: inspirational. I'm
1: afraid,
7: but my fear won't make me quit. As long as I have the power to walk, I will denounce all those who are harming the forest. These trees that we have in the Amazon are my sisters. When I see one of these trees on a truck going to a sawmill, it gives me pain. It is as if you were watching the funeral procession, carrying the most cherished friend you have, because it is life.
8: Well, we can see that Zé Claudio and his allies and people who came before him like Chico Mendes and Dorothy Stang, are all we have left between the forest and those who wish to destroy it. We've seen that they can be cut down like the very trees that they stand to protect, and they can be cut down in a land of lawlessness and impunity without any government protection. The government turns a blind eye on these crimes again and again.
1: Well, Christian Poirier, thank you so very much.
8: Thank you, Bruce.
1: Christian Poirier is the Brazil campaigner at Amazon Watch. Midwest farmers have a saying. Their corn should be knee-high by the 4th of July to ensure a good crop come harvest time. Well, farmers in Ohio and Indiana will have to be very short for that old saying to come true this year. Drenching rains in May left fields too soggy to plant corn seed in those states, and the fallout could be worldwide. Joining me from Ames, Iowa, is Chad Hart. He's a professor of agricultural economics at Iowa State University. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth.
9: It's my pleasure to be here.
1: So the saying about uh, corn being knee-high, is that true?
9: Uh, Sort of true, actually. Now they'd like it to be even taller.
1: They want it to be even taller. How is it in Ohio and Indiana
9: now? Well, in Ohio and Indiana right now, the problem is actually getting the seed in the ground. We've had uh, significant weather problems, delays, and... When the fields are too soggy, you can't get the tractors out there to plant the crop. They are well behind what they'd normally like to see planted.
1: And then we're talking about field corn here, we should say. This is not sweet corn on the
9: cob. That is correct. Um, in this case, this is field corn. So this is mainly used for either livestock feed or for ethanol production.
1: So in Ohio and Indiana, at what point is it too late to plant corn for the season?
9: Well, it depends. You know, agronomically, by the plant itself... They could still be planting into June. The issue though is is that the plant will yield less corn the later it is planted. What farmers are looking at right now is they could still plant the corn but get a reduced yield, they could shift to another crop, potentially soybeans, or they could take their prevented planting payment if they purchased crop insurance and so in this case the the crop insurance that producers can buy has coverage in cases like this when it 's too wet to plant in a timely manner and you can receive an, an insurance payment.
1: So what is the price of corn going for right about now?
9: For the crop that's being planted right now it's being priced in the $6.50 to $7 per bushel range. The record is almost $8 and so we're about a dollar off that but historically we're more used to 250 to $3 per bushel.
1: Whoa. So producers of corn could really make a killing in this this market.
9: This year, well, it looks very good. Um, in this case, their cost of production per bushel is probably $4 to 4 and a half dollars 5 per bushel. So this is a very good price.
1: Well, what's good for the producers isn't necessarily good for the buyers.
9: No. In fact, that's the deal. As you look at these prices, it does make the usage of that corn that much more expensive.
1: How fierce is the competition between ethanol producers and livestock feeders?
9: Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily fierce, it's just the idea is that when, you know, each individual is looking to make that purchase, they all have to figure out at what price level are they willing to chase this corn at. And so far, we're seeing that they're willing to pay significantly high prices to obtain that corn.
1: How does this translate to food prices for, well, for me?
9: For food prices for us, it does have an impact. Arguably, with the corn, it does take some time for that impact to occur. Since it's a feed for our cattle, our hogs, our chickens, eventually these higher corn prices are higher feed costs, which show up as higher livestock prices, which eventually show up as higher meat prices. But when we look at the overall cost of the farm products going into our food, it's actually still relatively small. About for every dollar that you spend at the grocery store, 15 to 16 cents is what's going back to pay for the farm product in that food.
1: The United States is is the world's number one uh, producer of of corn?
9: Yes, we are. We produce about 40 percent of all the corn worldwide.
1: So what happens here really does make a difference in the rest of the world.
9: It does. When you look at corn trade throughout the world, as I say, we're 40 percent of the production, but we're roughly two-thirds of all the corn that's traded between countries throughout the world.
1: So we've got these soggy fields in Ohio and... uh, in China and Europe, they have droughts. And since this is an international market for corn, how is this going to be play out worldwide?
9: This is where when we're looking at food cost, they vary tremendously worldwide. Here in the United States, our food costs are much less tied to the cost of the commodities going into it. Our food costs are much more impacted by energy costs, by transportation costs, by labor wage rates. In Africa, there's a much more direct relationship between commodity prices and food prices.
1: It's kind of amazing. You have this simple crop, corn, and it gets very complicated very fast.
9: Well, it's an amazingly what I call versatile crop. It can be used in food, in our feed, in our fuel, in fibers. That means it has a variety of values, and that typically means increase in price.
1: So... In Ames, where you are right now, I don't know how tall you are, but is the corn near your knee?
9: Oh, no. Most of the corn that is out here in central Iowa right now is probably, I would say, three to four inches tall, but it will grow quite quickly over the next month.
1: I heard that corn can grow so quickly you can actually hear it.
9: (laughs) That's what some have said. I, I cannot say I've ever heard it, but it does grow tremendously fast.
1: Well, Professor Hart, thanks so
9: much. Thank you, sir.
1: Chad Hart is an ag economist at Iowa State University. If you were a coral reef, you couldn't find a harsher environment than the Persian Gulf. Surface water temperatures can reach near 90 degrees, and there's the world's saltiest seawater and intense coastal construction. No wonder an estimated 70% of all reefs in the Persian Gulf have died, and the remaining 30% are on the brink. But scientists believe those tenacious reefs that do remain may hold a valuable secret. Reporter Ken Schulman traveled to Abu Dhabi, capital of the United Arab Emirates, to learn more.
3: A 16-foot whaler carrying a team of divers plows through the choppy waters off Saadiyat Island a sandy man-made landmass just north of Abu Dhabi city. The skipper counts down in Arabic and eyes his GPS as the boat nears its target, a coral reef some 30 feet below.
10: I'm going to get you to work on the uh, tiles, and I'm going to
2: go off and get some uh, tissue samples from corals. Uh, It is cold.
3: John Byrd is a marine biologist at New York University's campus in Abu Dhabi. He and his team from the Environmental Agency of Abu Dhabi make quarterly visits to ten reefs off the emirate. They want to chart the health of the corals here, but unlike reefs in other parts of the world, these corals have never had a checkup.
9: They were never really properly documented, so part of what we're doing here is, is setting up a, a baseline, figuring out what the conditions are of reefs here now, so that we can go back and look at them every three, five, ten years, and uh, and find out, are they improving, are they in decline, uh, and identifying what are the potential causes of those changes.
3: If you dive, or snorkel, or just watch Animal Planet, you know how vital coral reefs are. They cover less than one-tenth of one percent of the ocean floor, but they host more than 25 percent of all marine species. In a healthy reef, the bright blue, green, and red hues come from a type of algae called zooxanthellae. These algae live in symbiosis with the coral. Through photosynthesis, they transform carbon into tasty sugars for their host. The corals get fed, the algae get a place to live, and everybody's happy, until they start feeling stressed.
8: What happens under stress is that um, due to different um, events, and in some cases temperature, the corals actually lose their zooxanthellae, or their algae. This causes coral bleaching, in which you notice whitening of the coral.
3: Swad al is a scientist with the Environmental Agency of Abu Dhabi, or EAD. She explains that coral bleaching occurs when sudden drops or spikes in temperature cause the zooxanthellae to produce toxins instead of glucose. Sensing danger, the coral sheds the algae to save its skin. But it's the skin that's the problem. Bleaching leaves corals hungry, it also leaves them white, and dangerously exposed to sunlight. If the event is short-lived, the coral can recover.
8: If... The conditions of stress remain for a prolonged period. It might then lead to their death, and then they won't actually be able to recover, and then it ends up being overgrown by other things.
3: Corals are under stress in every ocean on the planet, but the Gulf reefs have it tougher. In the tropics, water temperatures may drift a degree or two between winter and summer. Here, they careen from the low 50s to the high 90s. Intense evaporation leaves these waters incredibly saline, so salty that most species don't survive. One by one, four divers plunge into the wind-wrinkled water. Half a mile away on the shore of Saadiyat Island, battalions of construction cranes and earth movers shape the skeleton of what will become Abu Dhabi's cultural center, a cluster of world-class museums, resorts, and universities. After 20 minutes, the first diver returns. Ibrahim Abdullah is a former army officer. He says human activity has also impacted the reefs here.
5: When they do the dredging, you know, the current just carries the sediment and lands on top of the corals and sometimes they suffocate. Just like any other living creature, you cover them with Mm -hmm. sand, sediment, plastic, anything, then they get suffocated there.
3: A second diver returns with a stack of ceramic tiles used to attract juvenile corals. Soon a third comes aboard with a monitor containing three months worth of temperature readings. Already reeling from a one-two El Nino punch in the late 90s, Gulf corals took another body blow last summer when water temperatures soared above 100 degrees and stayed there. The heat bleached much of the dominant species, a branched coral known as Acropora. Yet the news today from the bottom is encouraging. According to EAD scientist Edwin Grandcourt, the acropora here off Sadiat are coming back.
7: The same species in other locations would die at these temperatures. So the coral reefs we have here in the Arabian Gulf are adapted to these this extreme environment. Um, so by the book, coral reefs shouldn't be here for sure, but they are, and they've adapted.
3: Abu Dhabi may seem an unlikely environmental laboratory. The oil-rich flamboyant emirate is barely as old as the global environmental movement. But Abu Dhabi is catching up. The environmental agency has a voice in most significant development decisions. Private corporations are also getting into the act. Adil Albuainin is general manager of Dolphin Energy, a natural gas supplier that sponsors the coral research. Dolphin Energy changed the course of its 200-mile gas pipeline from Qatar to help preserve reefs.
2: During the project execution itself, during even the, the detailed engineering of the pipeline, there are a number of revisions, a number of changes, because of original route was you know, going through uh, the coral reef, and that, that has to be redirected and changed the route just to make sure that there is no damage to them.
3: The EAD laboratory is sandwiched between a fish market and a jet ski rental store on the Abu Dhabi waterfront. Inside, NYU's John Burt places coral tissue samples from today's dives in plastic jars. Later, he'll inspect each one for size, color, and texture. As corals normally spawn on the full moon, and with the full moon just three days away, he'll also be on the lookout for eggs and sperm. The Canadian-born scientist finds the corals in this gulf astonishing. A hot bath in your home is 40 degrees Celsius. So when you're talking about 38 degrees Celsius and corals are living through it, it's, it's a remarkable story in terms of the story that it could tell us about climate change
9: and its potential impacts or non-impacts on reef systems.
3: The Environmental Agency researchers know that Gulf corals are surviving in conditions that should kill them, but they don't know how or why. The secret might lie in the proteins corals secrete to protect themselves during bleaching, an organic sunscreen in a new long-lasting formula. It might be a new chapter in the relationship between corals and their zooxanthellae partners. Whatever the elements, Burt and his colleagues believe the story, when written, could help reefs everywhere survive and prosper. For Living on Earth, I'm Ken Schulman in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates.
1: Coming up, highways
6: become skyways in the not-too-distant future. Stay tuned. It's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce
1: Gellerman. 2,000 years ago, all roads led to Rome. And while Rome wasn't built in a day, today... It might not get built at all, because roads and riverways no longer dictate where cities are sited. It's the highways in the sky that'll count, according to the authors of a new book, Aerotropolis, The Way We'll Live Next. It's by John Casarda and Greg Lindsay. Greg Lindsay recently talked with Living on Earth Steve Kerwin. So what is
7: the The Aerotropolis.
10: You know, the idea of an aerotropolis is, and it's, you know, it can mean either a city built from scratch, if you're China or India, um, or it can sort of apply to the cities we already have, the cities that are more connected globally uh, to the other side of the world than they are to their own hinterlands. And, um, you know, so an aerotropolis could be, you know, Dubai is an interesting example of a place that didn't exist 20 years ago and only exists by the grace of air travel. Or it can mean a city like in some ways, I think Dallas-Fort Worth is an example. There was a place. Where you know the notion of Dallas Fort Worth didn't exist until 1973 when the airport opened. Air travel has changed the literal scope of our our universes. It's made it possible for us to to do things that were never possible even a generation or two ago. Um, you know, and I think in Europe that's uh, that's particularly more recognized. There's some estimates that there's a phantom suburb of a million people of London that basically commute from, you know, Spain and the Mediterranean on a weekly or daily basis. And that's good for both the people who do it because they're able to command those wages in London. And that it's an amazing thing for London. I mean, it makes London even more of a talent magnet. It makes that city even more vibrant and rich.
7: I gather this is a concept that was developed by you and Dr. John Casarda. He uh, teaches entrepreneurship at the University of North Carolina. I think Dr. Casada sees this more as an urban layout that revolves around an airport, whereas uh, you, Greg Lindsay, see this in broader terms as a, a closer relationship with the air, something I think you dubbed the instant age.
10: Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the ideas that I wanted to sketch out in the book and sort of take, uh, you know, Dr. Gasarda's views a, a little more broadly um, was really sort of to sketch out how air travel underlies our daily lives more than we know. I think most people tend to think of air travel as, you know, your, your annual holiday to Florida or California, um, when really, you know, that air travel has grown over the last 30 or 40 years into the mechanism that is globalization. I mean, it's what delivers your iPad to your doorstep from China. It is what sort of you know delivers increasing amounts of food from the other side of the world. It is this sort of whole system that has sprung up invisibly. Uh, in the form of FedEx and UPS and others, that really support what we think of as contemporary life. Because Sartre's vision of the Eurotropolis is, so you know so he imagines cities where the airport is, the terminals are at the heart of the city, um, and then you can basically draw rings around it uh, as as functions that need to be close, like cargo hangers um, are in the inner rings, and then office parks, and then so on and so on. And that's exactly what they're sort of building in the middle of China right now. It's, it's fascinating.
7: Now, Greg, of all the cities that you visited and studied in your research for this book, which one strikes you as the most compelling or perhaps the most meaningful?
10: I would say the most compelling to me was Dubai. And I don't say this in sort of a sense of, you know, I, you know, I enjoy it or I endorse it in some ways. But Dubai strikes me as, as in many ways the city of the future for good and for bad. And I think Americans should pay very close attention to it. Dubai basically remade itself uh, as the crossroads of what's being called the New Silk Road, the, the trade routes that go from China to the Middle East, India, and into Africa. This is sort of the navel of the world on the other side, and I think it has repercussions for all of us because Dubai is a city that would not exist without America, either with because we kept them out, um, and also because uh, our driving habit, our gasoline, basically paid for money those towers to build, and so. By our refusal to engage with all these people on the opposite side of the world, following nine eleven, we basically left them to forge new connections between each other. And you know, as I as I touch upon in the book, you can trace those connections by their air routes. You can see how the Middle East has become a giant global air hub. You can see how these traders are moving back and forth through the region. And um, I think it's something we've missed. Too busy, uh, I've been focused on our McMansions and uh, and our wars.
7: So, Greg, what do these cities mean for the environment? You know, what about climate? What about uh, peak oil? Um, I know at this point, air travel is only 2% of global CO2 emissions. On the other hand, it is 2% of global CO2 emissions.
10: Well, you know, that's the interesting thing. I mean... You know, with cities, it really comes back to cities. I mean, that strikes me as the biggest challenge facing the world. Is you know, cities are half of all people, but they're seventy-two percent of all electricity consumption. Um, you know, the built environment is the largest single source of carbon emissions. So it's interesting. I mean, you could you could look at the notion of uh, of the c- wave of city building, particularly around air travel, and look at it as a as you know as an ultimate negative, the thing that will finally push us over the edge. Um, or as a number of people have done, you look at it this opportunity to build it right this time. Um, But really it comes back to, you know, the fact that we are going to sort of double, you know, the urban footprint of the earth in the next 20 years. And, um, To me, the the larger question is, you know, when it comes to peak oil and it comes to climate change, is really the notion of globalism itself. Uh, I just read a report by Greenpeace that, uh, you know, the data centers, you know, the kind used by Google and Facebook and everything else, is another 2% of all electricity consumption. um, And that doesn't count the devices we actually use. So, you know, whenever I read about, you know, or talk to people about, you know, that we need to cut back on flying, we need to cut back on travel. You know, the statistics show historically that the more we communicate – the more we're likely to fly. They're not substitutes, they're complements. I do hope, you know, in the case of aviation, that, um, you know, the next generation biofuels provide an answer, that we can basically scale this up. Because if we don't, I mean, you know, I think we're just going to see people fly regardless uh, and, you know, and pump increasing amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere.
7: So how do you get people to go along with your view that um, the aerotropolis is the way that we'll live next in a positive sense i mean my perspective of the airport and airplanes is what on the airplane there's no legroom there's bad food most people give out a groan when they think about going to the airport and dealing with the airport
10: well you know i think i think the comedian louis ck put it best you know when he did his classic sketch you know everything is amazing and nobody is happy i mean you know you're in a chair in the sky traveling at 600 miles an hour at 35000 feet i mean you know you can cross the country in 6 hours Your scope of movement around the world is amazing, and we're able to keep in touch with friends and family that we've never had, you know, and we're also able to do business on a scale. I mean, it allows people to really sort of market their skills and really engage with the world. Um, I do a lot of flying, and I still think that air travel is at its core something wondrous, something that is, uh, you know, never achieved. It goes back to Icarus. It goes back to myth.
7: How inevitable is the Aerotropolis?
10: Well, it depends on how you look at it. There's a report that came out by McKinsey that I was just reading. It was called "I was um, sort of mapping the future of cities." And McKinsey basically predicted that 100 cities by 2050, or by 2025, actually uh, would have a third of all global growth, and then the next 500 would have the next third. So basically, 600 cities would have two thirds of all growth going forward, and the rest sort of didn't matter much. They were in the long tail. And so you have leaders all over the globe right now basically trying to figure out how they can get their cities into the top 600 because otherwise they see it as they don't count. And those are the places that are sort of rushing to build these connections through the air. There will be, you know, these cities that are trying to force their way into uh, the global trade routes and force themselves to become a, a world power, like a Dubai, you know, which basically tried to present itself as an equivalent to London or New York in the span of ten years. Those are the places that are going to sort of pursue this, and I think it's easy for us, the United States, to dismiss it. And I think we fail to recognize just to what lengths, you know, those who are aspiring to be as a to live as comfortably as we do uh, will go to in an attempt to uh, to build themselves into world powers overnight.
7: Greg Lindsay is co-author of Aerotropolis, The Way We'll Live Next.
1: Thank you so much.
10: Thank you for having me. Greg Lindsay, talking
1: with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwin. The sounds of insects on a warm spring evening is music to the ear of composer Meira Warshauer. Warshauer's first symphony was inspired by insects and other sounds she heard in the rainforest of Peru and her own backyard in South Carolina. The symphony has just been released on CD. Producer Eileen LeBlanc has this profile of the composer and a composition called Living Breathing Earth.
0: I had been recording the cicadas and the backyard sounds... And was listening really carefully to them. I wanted to see what were the natural rhythms. What were the sounds that were around us? But I was playing those over and over again, the recordings of the cicadas and the birds and the water. And the, the rhythms of the cicadas really caught my ear. They have like a 21 second or, or so span of phrase on the shaker. It goes like, um, Or with my mouth, it's this. I was interested in the the shape of that phrase. It starts slowly and gets faster, and then and builds and to the crescendo, and then it has this glissando at the end. So I took that length and that kind of the energy rising and diminuendoing, getting softer, and let that be the arch of the phrasing for the first movement, which is called Call of the Cicadas. Actually, I asked myself, what would Mr. Cicada do, what would he sound like if he had a whole orchestra like I have to play? It wouldn't just be high pitches, and it wouldn't just be those rhythms. Well, what would it be? It certainly would be a, a broader um, pitch range from low to high, and so I was able to bring in the basses and the you know, the low brass, And but I also wanted to give a sense of the summer air and the humidity and the thickness of that summer heat and so I had these I had the oboes and bassoons and maybe it's a mosquito I don't know but it's, it's one of those insects that kind of comes out when it's really hot in the south and and I associate it with this really thick wonderful hot air which I love I'm from North Carolina and I love the summer heat <laughs> The recordings in Peru were not as dramatic as the ones I had in my backyard. But what those recordings have is a richness of layers, so many different different animals making their quiet contributions to a, an incredibly rich soundscape. my family and I, when we went to Peru, we stayed at a lodge right on the Tawayo River, and one night we went on a canoe ride down this Tawayo River, and it was a night with a no moon, Um, so all the stars were really bright, and not only the stars were twinkling in their dark background, but along the sides were the Fireflies. So we had the stars twinkling and then the fireflies connecting the heavens really to the earth. And then, since we were on the river, it didn't stop at the earth because it was all reflected in the dark water below. And it was so peaceful. third movement captures the energy of the butterflies that they're swirling around. The, by the side of the river, there were these yellow butterflies that were in a pattern. And of course the sun was shining on them and lighting up the water, um, glistening there. And It was really um, kind of a sparkly sounding, but I put it in the strings and just had them move really fast and, and very lightly. I mean, I hate to proselytize, but in this time, I feel it's so important for us to reconnect with how much we love this earth. I know everyone loves the earth. Who has ever seen a child that doesn't love to play outside? We all come into life loving the earth, and we need to wake up. So I hope this wakes us up. I hope it gives us comfort. I hope it gives us joy. I hope it lulls us to sleep in the second movement. I hope it wakes us up with wings in the third movement. I hope the first movement just makes us want to go outside and listen to all the weird and great stuff that there is. And and I hope the last movement just inspires us and carries us forward.
1: Mayor Walshauer's Living, Breathing Earth was performed by the South Carolina Philharmonic, conducted by Nicholas Smith and recorded by engineer Jeff Francis. Walshauer's new CD is on Novona Records. Our sound portrait was produced by Eileen LeBlanc. For more information and a slideshow, go to our website, LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young with help from Sarah Cawkins, Gabriela Romano, and Sammy Souza. And we welcome a new intern this week, Anne-Marie Singh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org or on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And you can tweet us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer.
6: I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.